Hello, it's Hump Day Somewhere, and I'm Mike Gutierrez, the editor at Hump Day News, your source for good junk in art, politics, sports, and culture. Welcome to Editor's Picks at HumpCast, the podcast at Hump Day News. In these episodes, I pick a few of my favorite articles and posts from the site, read them aloud to wake you up or put you to sleep. Before we get down to it, a quick reminder that if you want things in your inbox, we'll put things in your inbox with the Hump Day News newsletter. It's a regular wrap-up of coverage past and content to come, with links, tips, taters, and tots served up fresh, nice, and hot. And if you're subscribed to the newsletter but not signed up for The Backyard, shame on you. The Backyard is a members-only area at Hump Day News where you'll find all that's best and bizarre at HDN. We've got Mappily Power Rankings, letters from the editor, our in-cell advice column, and more. Sign up at the Hump Day News to log in and enjoy. Our first article is Columbus Museum Workers Vote Union. Uh, it's the Columbus Museum of Art. Uh, they recently uh, voted union, which means uh, that they don't have their contract yet, but they have formed a collective bargaining unit. Uh, now I'm joined by Sarah Prusik, who is a contributor at Hump Day News. And I want to ask her, um, what forms or, or what determines which group of workers have a common interests, uh, such that they would want to form a collective bargaining unit under the auspices of a union. And I put that question to you because sometimes people question whether, say, different kinds of workers in the organization, say you're an office worker, have the same kind of um, uh, uh, common concerns as uh, someone else in another part of the, the organization, maybe a curator, maybe someone working the custodial staff. What brings these workers together in terms of um, wanting to bargain together for a contract in common? That's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure I have all the answers, but I guess I'd say, you know, although they might have common interests, they do get different, uh, you know, treatment from their employers. So we have salaried employees who, you know, likely work a nine to five, they get holidays off, um, probably have health care versus uh, presumably hourly employees who, you know, might not even be making a minimum wage in terms of their weekly pay. Um, how do you bring them together? I'm not quite sure. Yeah, and here an, an assumption you're making, uh, 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 which I made my, myself in some of these instances, is that, say, someone like uh, who works in the custodial staff would be on an hourly uh, uh uh, wage basis, um, whereas someone working in the office might have a more uh, salaried gig. Um, not necessarily the case when you, you look at how some of the um, personnel situations are set up at these places. And I think that's part of the reason that um, workers in, working in such diverse departments in these um, big cultural institutions have found the common cause uh, to um unionize and to seek uh, the opportunity to collectively bargain on the basis of um, the kind of stability, the kind of better compensation, the kind of benefits that they all want uh, in common. Um, so it's something to watch going forward. Again, that's Columbus Museum Workers Vote Union. On Thursday, 27th, October 2022, workers at the Columbus Museum of Art 
voted to form a union in affiliation with AFSCME Council 8. The vote comes two months after a late August announcement by the workers of their intent to unionize and a request to management to voluntarily recognize the union, foregoing the necessity of a vote. Though early reports suggested that the museum management was open to the union, no voluntary recognition was forthcoming. The vote results uh, in a 46-2 decision to form the union per the NLRB filing. The push to unionize grew out of the workers' desire to have a stronger voice in the workplace. Like at many cultural institutions during the pandemic, the inequalities already present between management and workers in the workplace were magnified. The employees formed the CMAWU, Columbus Museum of Art Workers United, in response, with the aim of forming a collective bargaining unit to negotiate better working conditions. If the CMAWU was looking for a local model of organizing, it found one in the nearby Wexner Center for the Arts, which announced its intent to unionize earlier in the year. The Columbus Art Institutions join a national trend of cultural workers riding the union wave in places like the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and more. Given the relatively short turnaround time between the announcement of intent and the union vote, the CMAWU are hoping that management sustains the momentum by heading to the negotiation table. Via Art Forum, quote, It's been an overwhelmingly positive experience to be part of our union campaign, and I know it's because the Columbus Museum of Art is an important part of this city's community, said CWAMU member and visitor services staffer R.G. Barton in a statement. Quote, I built really strong relationships, not just with my co-workers, but also with the community who have stood with us throughout this process. We hope they will continue to stand with us as we begin negotiating our contract. End quote. Initial comments from the CMA leadership are positive, but the proof will be a ratified contract that is amenable to all stakeholders. A spokesperson for the museum remarked via NBC4 that the institution looks forward to a constructive relationship with the union. Quote, we recognize the importance of boldly exploring new ways of thinking and doing and look forward to building a stronger, better museum for generations to come, the CMA spokesperson said. End quote. All right, our next article is called Porterfield returns and sarah hopefully you like this one because i know you like the midway it's a show uh, a music show we had porterfield we had the band lawn we had uh the band clam um but uh mostly what i was hoping to talk about were uh the visuals by digital awareness and maybe just the general digital awareness presence at the show now sarah do you know who digital awareness are i am not so i am now becoming aware of digital awareness good 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 um well i think the first thing that you'd become aware of is their um snazzy red jumpsuits you know uh uh head to toe you know ghostbuster style uniform um they made quite a striking impression um just being there in person but uh i think they're main job was supposed to be providing a light show, which they did. Um, now tell me, in your years of going to shows, how important is the light show, the visual sort of aspect to the whole experience? Or are you like just, eh, whatever, just give me the music? You know, I like a good show. I like um, 
performers who kind of are real showmen or show women. I like um, I like a show where sort of the audience gets sort of lit up by what's going on on stage, though I appreciate the more sort of somber and cerebral performances as well. But yeah, digital awareness, way to go. Ah, everyone enjoys a good somber show. <laughs> um, all right, so we'll leave it there. That's Porterfield Returns. Uh, of course, they were a former Boston band, uh, but now they ride the Boston, New York circuit. Uh, that's Porterfield Returns. Uh, have a listen. Once upon a time, locals Porterfield returned to Boston, kicking off a lineup of progressive jazz at Midway Cafe on Friday, 21st, October 2022. It was the second half of a two-show night at the Jamaica Plain Music Club. The crowd from the earlier show featuring a dead tribute band was just clearing out as the proggers were rolling in. For a few magical moments, the street curb out front was the contact high hub of the universe. Clam and lawn materialized out of the haze to fill the rest of the bill. A small fleet of AV geeks in red jumpsuits, who went by the moniker Digital Awareness, was also in attendance. They scrambled around the venue like ants on a picnic blanket plugging cords into strange and unexpected places. Their main priorities seem to be operating the Psychedelic Light Show, filming the event and providing sundry formats of electronic wizardry, shades of Devo roadies. When the first act started, the red jumpsuits bunkered behind an instrument panel at stage right and cooed with pleasure throughout the show each time the buttons beneath their fingertips changed colors. Porterfield's set? was something like a homecoming. The four-piece band used to call Boston home, and Boston was glad to have them, nominating the jazz rockers for BMA's Best Jazz Artist once or twice. Their fusion sound was in full effect Friday night, combining the brassy tone of saxophone with propulsive, guitar-driven rock rhythms and solid knob twiddling. The group performed without a bass player. The low end of the soundscape was chiefly provided by the synth player, who was rocking a cowboy hat for half the night. Nowadays, all but one member has decamped for New York, but the Midway Cafe still has a place in their hearts. Clam opened its set with a shaggy, lifted version of David Bowie's fame. The Earth Magic Peace Lords from Alston can clamify any song or sound, running it through their prog jazz salad shooters according to their current mood. On Friday night, their mood seemed to be largely determined by a bad branch, a bad batch, excuse me, of lamprey eels that the band had eaten prior to the gig. To be clear, lamprey eels are edible and considered a delicacy by many, but they look kind of nasty. Here's some other stuff to know via HuffPost. Quote, As babies, sea lampreys are blind and feed by filtering microorganisms through the water. But as adults, they attach themselves to other fish or even dolphins by using their sucking mouth parts a jawless mouthful of teeth to attach themselves to the host's body. So explains the Alaska Department of Fish and Game. Oh, and by the way, they can kill up to 40 fish a year. Clam overcame its queasiness with good humor, waving to the crowd after every song, like Miss America riding a float at Thanksgiving Day Parade. It was a real shtick. We wrote up a blurb recently about comedic callbacks in live music shows, drawing the conclusion that the move usually falls flat. But the room was in fine fettle and waved right back. Sometimes it's the person telling the joke, not the joke itself, that makes you laugh. 
extra points for one particular song, a slow neon cowboy groover that sounded like Clam was dressing up as the house band from Twin Peaks' Bang Bang Bar for Halloween. Closer Lawn brought its own pep squad, which chanted Mow the Lawn between jams. The five-piece proggy big banders played juiced-up jazz rock riffs with the energy of a late-night television jobbers. Shades of G.E. Smith and Saturday Night Live Band. Extra points for playing us out like Keyboard Cat. Alright, our final piece is called Rayla Campbell. I am historic. It's a campaign profile of the Republican candidate for Secretary of State in Massachusetts. Um, more accurately, Secretary of the Commonwealth, since, as I've been told uh, by Sarah, who's joining me today, uh, contributor to Hump Day News, uh, Massachusetts is a commonwealth, not officially a state. Uh, all that being said, Rayla Campbell lost the race. Uh, spoilers. Um, the election was on November 8th, and she lost it in a landslide. Uh, but she was a quite interesting candidate and indicative to a certain extent of the kind of candidates that the Republican Party is putting forth, both uh, in Massachusetts and nationwide. Sarah, can I ask you, have you ever heard anything about Rayla Campbell? I have not. Um, and, you know, full disclosure, I'm fairly new to Massachusetts, so it's been a bit of a learning curve Um coming from the state of Illinois, which has a lot of political corruption. And uh, I'm pretty uh, impressed by the politics in Massachusetts in general. Oh, we're no corruption here. No corruption. You uh, obviously weren't watching the Suffolk County District Attorney race, but that's another story. Um, but yes, uh, so we um, gladly welcome you to uh, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and, and glad to have your insight from another state where politics might be run a little different. And uh, at least one way that there might be a little different in Massachusetts versus Illinois is the predominance of the Democrat, uh, Democratic Party, um, which is in many races pretty much the uh, only game in town. So I think that was the story here with Rayla Campbell. She was a Republican candidate put forth basically as a sacrificial lamb um, because the Republican Party needed to put someone forth. There was no way in hell that she was going to beat Bill Galvin, who's been in office for 25 years as a Democrat. Um, but the Republican Party wanted to put forth a candidate at least. Now, could they have done better than Rayla Campbell? Uh, quite possibly. And I just want to uh, uh, mention at least one escapade that Rayla Campbell was involved in up to um, uh, leading up to the election. And I won't say it all. It's in the article uh, that you're about to hear. Uh, but listen uh, for uh, her involvement in the Massachusetts GOP convention uh, in which she announced her candidacy. She made a very uh, particular and interesting, exotic and unfounded claim uh, about um, uh, the uh, uh, what kind of sexual education uh, kids in Massachusetts were receiving in public schools. Um, that was, you know, immediately um, uh, 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 shown to be false, but nevertheless became a kind of uh, continuous trope of her uh, campaign. Um, so uh, please have a listen to Rayla Campbell, I Am Historic, coming up next. On November 8th, 2022, the voters in Massachusetts will decide who will be their next Secretary of State. The Republican candidate in the race, Rayla Campbell, 
faces an uphill battle to unseat a Democratic incumbent who has been in the office since grunge music was a hot new sound coming out of Seattle. So who is Campbell and what sort of political ideas drive her political campaign? Rayla Campbell was born in Massachusetts in 1982 and grew up in Situate. She is married to husband John, and together they have three children. Campbell attended public schools and joined the workforce out of high school before enrolling in vocational training at the Porter and Chester Institute of Canton to become certified as a dental assistant. She graduated at the top of her class. Her career path ultimately split time between stints in healthcare and the insurance industry until 2020, when she reinvented herself as a full-time candidate for office and part-time radio show host, with sometimes controversial ideological commitments. You can catch her radio show on Thursday mornings, 9 to 11 a.m. on WSMN 1590. That's Nashua's source for news and talk. Other hosts at the station include Firebrand for Hire Dana Loesch, whose quotable quote, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate, has raised a few eyebrows. Also at the station, Bob Bartis and Bob Bianchi of The Racing Report and Karen Cataline, whose book, was the first to introduce the term princess by proxy, which remains relevant as a cautionary tale about blurred boundaries in the sexualization of children. The two slots uh, right behind Campbell's show, that's 11 to 12 a.m. and 12 to 1 p.m., are currently available if you'd like to petition for airtime. Aside from radio hosting, Campbell has been focused on her candidacy. First in the 2020 congressional race for U.S. House District 7, in which she competed as a write-in candidate, along with a slate of names that ultimately lost in a landslide to the incumbent and overwhelming favorite in the race, Ayanna Presley. Campbell earned 39.6% of the Republican primary, far and away the winner in the Republican field, albeit in a vote with extremely low turnout. She did not fare as well in the general election, earning 0.2% of the vote as a write-in, losing out to not only Presley, but also the independent write-in candidate Roy Owens. The underwhelming result did not deter Rayla Campbell from choosing to run for Secretary of State in 2022. She was endorsed by the Massachusetts GOP at the 2022 Republican State Convention in Springfield in May, where she introduced herself to the delegates with a combative rhetorical style highlighted by her now infamous claim about oral sex and sex education in public schools. The genesis of Campbell's political aspirations and the nature of her political thought are difficult to pinpoint. The biography available at her website skips over what motivated her turn to politics and the published platform, titled My Platform, mentions political keywords without connecting them to concrete policy recommendations. On elections, Campbell has been quoted as saying she'll provide oversight and not be an overlord to the election statewide. In terms of protecting consumers with oversight, Campbell has stated that she will make it a fair and level playing field, keeping brokers on the up and up and protecting you, the investor, by enforcing the laws equally. If violations are suspected, we make sure they are investigated, and if wrongdoing is found, they are sanctioned or prosecuted. This is my oath to taxpayer, uh, an open and free marketplace, encouraging the production of capital or wealth, not penalizing it. Further, along with protecting the opportunity for individuals to accumulate wealth, she has also made pledges to help corporations do the same. Quote, 
Another equally crucial function of the Secretary of State is the oversight of corporations. Unfortunately, Massachusetts is one of the most burdensome and costly states in the country behind only New Jersey uh, to start a corporation or LLC. The fees are outrageous, and the red tape is never-ending. It almost dissuades corporations from starting here and growing. How many businesses have steered clear of Massachusetts because of this incalculable... Massachusetts is anything but friendly territory for corporations. It's simply not good economic policy, end quote. Uh, editor's note here, um, the uh, incoherent um, text and grammar is uh, uh, belongs to uh, Campbell's website, uh, not my reading. Um, to resume, the typical candidate will try to promote their platform and ideas through, through prolific public speaking engagements and a working rapport with the press. Campbell has not opted for either strategy. Her speaking engagements are few, generally restricted to small gatherings of party faithful, and her relationship with the press is constrained and conflicted, uh, stressed by the duty of journalists to fact-check Campbell's frequent controversial and unfounded claims. Though Campbell received some sympathetic coverage as a result of being a target of unkind and racially charged remarks by a political activist in July, the tone of her treatment in the press tends to be curt, if not wary. A brief candidate profile by the Boston Globe can be quoted in its entirety. <clears throat> Question. How would you describe the job you are running for? And Rayla Campbell's response, constitutional office and incredibly important. Question, why are you best suited for this role? Rayla Campbell's response, I am historic. Question, please list your top three priorities if you win. Rayla Campbell's response, protecting our constitutional rights, transparency, accountability. End quote. Campbell is correct that a political win for her would be historic. Women around Massachusetts are well-positioned to win high offices that have never had female leadership, and a win by a woman of color would be all the more of a rare and historic occurrence. It's a prospect that might entice some voters to throw their lot in with Campbell, though it should be noted that the incumbent and white male candidate Bill Gavin, Galvin rather, won a landslide victory over female candidate of color Tanisha Sullivan in the Democratic primary. If diversity in the Secretary of State office did not move voters in the first round, it's hard to imagine it will move them in the general election. A relatively rare extended interview conducted by Keith Thibault of Fall River Community Media gives us a little bit more insight into the person behind the political campaign, her political ideas, and what drew her to run to office. In the interview, Campbell cites her experience as a parent, worrying about her children's education, as a strong motivation for entering politics. She also seems to hold a grudge against the 2022 political opponent, Bill Galvin, for his perceived mishandling of her status as a candidate in the 2020 race for U.S. House District 7. The air of grievance that hangs about her run for Secretary of State is further heightened by the ad hominem treatment of Galvin at her campaign website. Quote, the Secretary of State also needs to be an excellent communicator. This is severely lacking with who we have in office now. Bill Galvin is a misanthrope. He doesn't like people. Sort of an important character trait when your primary function is communication and accessibility, is it not? End quote. On the issues pertinent to the office of Secretary of State, Campbell discusses her worries 
about election integrity. She calls for the repeal of mail-in voting as part of the solution. She highlights the importance of the office for creating a political environment hospitable to business. Campbell calls for reducing fees and regulation associated with starting a business and demands improvements to the current website for the Secretary of State, a landing spot for many emerging businesses trying to navigate regulatory requirements. In reference to ballot question four, she pushes the lie, debunked many times over, that the registry of motor vehicles will automatically register undocumented immigrants to vote if when they are issued a driver's license under the proposed policy. Humpday News reached out to Rayla Campbell with questions to help fill out our campaign profile. We have not yet received a reply uh, uh, for a broader, if not deeper, perspective into the ideas that animate her political campaign. Voters will have to tune in to WSMN on Thursday mornings or track her often incendiary posts on Facebook and Twitter. The latter can be a tough follow. Campbell participates in some of the most destructive patterns of social media usage, operating in an ideological echo chamber that cheerleads slander and the amplification of proven falsehoods. In a highly polarized political landscape, however, the distinction between base slander and heroic truth-telling has become increasingly obscure. There is a constituency for Campbell's controversial rhetoric, though it's not clear that it's a constituency of voters that is based in the largely blue state of Massachusetts. For Campbell to win would require a, hor a historic upset, but as the candidate has said, I'm historic. This has been an episode of Editor's Picks on Humpcast at Humpday News. Thanks for joining. Visit us at the site at humpday.news for good junk in art, politics, sports, and culture. Follow us on our socials, subscribe to the newsletter, sign up for the backyard, and for the love of God, remember, every day is hump day.